When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just $60, bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to the AEW Dynamite Review. I'm Michael Sidgwick, joined by fellow Dudley boy Michael Hamflit to review everything that happened on last night's show. But before we get into it, if you're a fan of this sort of thing, make sure to subscribe to What Culture Wrestling on Apple, iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts from for daily wrestling podcasts where we review Dynamite, Raw, SmackDown, NXT, pay-per-views, we conduct wrestler interviews, we hold wrestling roundtable discussions, and host a roundup of the week complete with a bloody good quiz, of course, on wrestle culture. Now, Hamlet, it seems that everyone, with the rather unfortunate exception of Jim Ross, really liked AEW Dynamite last night. Did you share this opinion? Absolutely, I did. How could you not? Um, it was... Everything we hoped for in terms of a return to form, it felt vital again. The promotion felt like it had direction. It wasn't perfect, and that's okay, um, because we know they've got perfect in them. We know we've got tens, and this wasn't that. But this was just a reminder that those tens are coming back, and not just because of crowds and not just because of something that I can't wait to talk to, which was a reflection of how well they did in the pandemic. Quite remarkable on this of all shows. It was like, oh, that was actually not a bad time when there was no fans. But, yeah, um, vibes. We often talk about vibes with AEW, and I had all good ones coming out of this one. Yeah, it was just white-hot crowd, two excellent matches, great angles, great promo. You're essentially, well, in my opinion, last night's Dynamite captured the range of what a great wrestling TV show should be. Um, it was a blinding return to form. Yes, I knew all along dissenters that this was going to happen on a Wednesday. It does not excuse how bang average at best those Friday night dynamites were, but it was reassuring to know that they haven't lost anything um, remotely. Uh, the show started with Chris Jericho um, coming to the entrance booth because it is, uh, you know, it was written in Hulk Hogan's contract. You know, you can job anyone. Yeah. Job anyone you want, right? That's absolutely fine. Chris Jericho doesn't want to do that, which is admirable, but it's written in his contract that he has to have people scream Judas at him. And it's so much more palatable, right? So much more palatable when it's actual fans who are yeah. <laughs> earnestly into it. And, you know, it's become a bit of a meme. It's probably getting a bit overdone, but hey, over's over. Um, and Chris Jericho was pretty damn good at commentary, in my opinion. Um, so Jericho is off the hook this week. Um, the actual show proper started with what was previewed yesterday with a, I mean, yeah, probably be four stars. Which is so much better than the WWE. Yeah, it'll be three and a quarter stars, but nothing will mean anything. <laughs> That's the standard uh, with which we analyse 
AEW Dynamite. So I thought, all right, we're going to get a four-star match. We're probably going to get some super early chicanery. And it'll be fun. And it will just coast along on the fumes, let's just say, of this Young Bucks super elite, assorted, vengeful babyface angle. Uh, what we got was absolutely incredible. Unbelievable stuff. The match itself started uh, with Eddie Kingston teasing the idea of a flash pin with several combinations before the Young Bucks took control. Um, they super kicked Eddie Kingston and in full, awesome Toshiaka Kawada form, he just no-sold it. And it never resonates as a tribute act. We know he loves Kawada. We know he loves the Four Pillars. But he's got his own incredibly animated, authentic, expressive face. The way he just absorbed that super kick and was just like, no, fuck off. I'm not performing <laughs> that. It was absolutely wonderful. Um, when Kingston and Penta got into the match, some of their double teams were just... It was like they'd been tagging for years and years and years. There was one particular spot, which I... Forgive me, I can't remember the exact construction of it, but it ended up with a um, Penta Cheeky Nando's kick. Oh, yeah. Wonderful. Absolutely great. Um, eventually, as is often the case, the Good Brothers were summoned um, from the back. And it, I don't know what it was. I think it might just be the fact that the Young Bucks are genius storytellers and <laughs> are exceptional at arranging matches. The energy of this one felt different, usually particularly considering um, it's been very leaned on uh, recently. I probably would have groaned the energy and the way this match was constructed just felt a little bit different. I felt something in the air. And, yeah, what happened was the Good Brothers came out. Brandon Cutler tried to do his spray stuff. Frankie Kazarian, the Elite Hunter, is back, and thank God, because what a storyline this is. He comes in, saves the day, a miscommunication means that Brandon Cutler sprays the spray in Nick Jackson's face. I'm probably getting all of this in the wrong order because the energy was just so palpable and just I was lost in all of it. But Frankie Kazarian nails Brandon Cutler with a lariat. And the guy just takes the best bump you've ever seen in your life. And as all this is going on, the feeling is being generated of, Oh my God, they're going to win an Eliminator. They are going to win an Eliminator, and what's more, I really want them to do this. And lo and behold, with a spinning back fist, um, package pile driver, Project Fear combination, Eddie Kingston and Penta LZ Romero have earned themselves a shot next week at the AEW World Tag Team titles. If you've not watched Dynamite, and I suspect you have, you must go out of your way to watch this. In fact, you must go out of your way to watch this again. My prevailing take, Hamlet, before I get your thoughts on it, was there's been a nagging feeling that AEW have been taking the piss with this to the point where it no longer feels like genuine heat, where you want the goodies to win. It feels like a story beat that they are exhausting to not do much before we transition from the double or nothing stuff into All Out. This one segment... Such joyous, chaotic, like cathartic pandemonium that it justified the fact that AEW's become a heavy heat promotion because when you get justice, that's what it felt like, justice and catharsis and a happy ending like this, it just, it's restored the power of what a lot of people were considering about a month ago, a a passe storyline driver that was far too WWE, far too like North American pro wrestling with the worst connotations. But man, did this make it worth it. I am so into this tag team. I was so into this segment. The crowd were going ballistic. There was one three count 
slash two point nine count that was so goddamn close that I think the fans received it as a botch. Or around it, it wasn't. The timing was just inch perfect, and they were gutted that the goodies didn't win. What did you think of all this? Yeah, I loved it. Completely agree. Um, you said the word energy in there, and I think that was the key component to all of this. Um, I'd compare it to the kind of like the apex or the zenith of this like chaos running theatre, which was over the edge 98, Austin do love. Um, the perfection of the form, effectively, of the running. It did feel like something that was getting tropey. Um, I don't know, like it was feeling a bit treacly. I think because AEW were, were using it too much and they were like the, the agent and of those particularly bad dynamites where you get two or three on one show, like bits like dash. This was almost like, not, I don't want to say the justification or the vindication for all of that, but this was the positive side of that because it happened in 1998 too. There was too much of it then, but every now and then you would see the art form and the, the, this is perfected. You would see it's much like the, structuring of those Young Bucks tag matches or those Young Bucks multi-mens. They're not going to be for everybody, but the Young Bucks are the best at doing it. So when you love one, you really, really love one. You almost can't believe your eyes at one. And I think that was the energy they managed to summon up here. And it did sort of like, it did restore the faith a little bit that every now and then you might sort of grumble or you might grit your teeth off, even just feel a bit bored with all the run-ins. But for the payoffs, for the moments like this, you will, it's just another process to trust because I was exactly the same as you. I wasn't particular. Eddie Kingston could sell anything, and yet I still wasn't terribly sold on Pentaby and his latest best friend. Like, I'll buy anything he sells me, but this was one I was struggling with. And yet, by the end, we previewed it yesterday. It's in audio. Oh, I don't really want a match to build to a title match. I want the Young Bucks to move on. Like, three quarters of the way into this, I was like, I need Penta and Kingston to get the shot. They've been best friends all their lives. <laughs> like, Penta's always wanted to take a belt to Ruthie. That's all he's ever wanted. I was just buying him the whole thing. I think this was... Um, a reminder as well that AEW are going to be super creative with um, the usage of Elite Hunter Kazarian in all these new buildings. I, I cannot wait to see where he emerges from to just batter these complete arseholes. And this was like a key reminder of that as well. Um, just because I didn't think it was quite as potent in the, like Omega, it was felt a bit fluffier in the Omega match last week. And I think this was a back to best for the Kazarian running. Um, yeah, good, good pro wrestling chaos done right. And I feel as if the tag, I would like them now, to be honest, not that they'll win clean, clean, because that's, just, look at these young books, they're filthy, like from head to toe and everything underneath the nose, they're absolutely disgustingly filthy. Like we can't pass this review without talking about every upgrade they've made to their looks. And that obviously extends to all of the elite. You can see frigging Doc Gallows putting his beard into one of them little, like putting like little bobbles in his beard now so it like goes as long as he possibly can. You've got Kenny's Triple H look later on. Like they're all doing it and they're all having real fun with it. It'll still be dirty how the young books win. But I almost don't want the run-ins next week because I feel like it'll be a diluted version of this. I think they've nailed it here. And I think they've kind of got to beat them somehow. You've got to get something mirroring the double or nothing finish next week. Yeah, on the subject of next week, what was blinding about this entire presentation is that despite how overwhelmingly joyous and energetic and life-affirming almost it was, it struck me that this match is great. It really is. But there's another gear they can go to. And it turns out the gear they're going to go to is literally in six days' time. Penta didn't do a destroyer. I think one of the reasons why is because we saw one in the main event and um, there was a little bit of discipline in the agenting on this show and they were saving like some absolutely nuts stuff um, for the main event. 
but at the same time, they are saving the nut stuff within this dynamic for next week. It was like a hotter angle and story than it even was a match. And I thought the match itself was great. I could watch Eddie Kingston in the Young Bucks. Like, in stark contrast to what I was saying yesterday, like, what am I thinking, being down on it? The Eddie Kingston Young Bucks dynamic is so perfect. These affected arseholes who wear their affectations so wonderfully on their face against this just down-to-earth, folksy, folk hero. Uh, it's just absolutely wonderful. Loved this. Absolutely loved it. Uh, it goes back to him pinching the trainers, doesn't it? Sorry, because obviously he was... Um this time last year, and obviously it's lovely because it's because of AEW that he doesn't have to, but like this time last year he was selling his boots to survive, and these are men that get pissed off when their best friend's blood is on the new trainers. They, they're so far apart at this point that it just makes for this perfect chemistry, and I don't think, like, I don't think they could have happened upon that any better for trying, so it's amazing that these characters have come together when they have at this particular point in the various arts. Yeah, absolutely just wonderful, life-affirming stuff. It's basically, this segment was the reason I watch professional wrestling. It's the reason why I prefer one brand of professional wrestling to another, because you see now like this, even with the very best of WWE. Uh, they run down the card, um, and then we transition to the Christian Cage latest pep talk towards Jungle Boy. And this time, it wasn't in his inflections and the subtext of his words by saying, hey, you might get lucky again. Mm. You, might get, you might shock the world again, Jungle Boy. Christian Cage, the creepy little bastard emerging from this... Um, this exterior, veteran exterior, it's just so wonderful. I'm going to struggle to articulate what was so, what resonated with me so much about this Christian Cage thing. It was his looks to the camera. <laughs> yeah. His looks to the camera. It's like, I don't know if he was conveying sort of how incredulous he was, that Jungle Boy when it was this close to Kenny Omega, but it was just a wonderful little pep talk. Um, which masqueraded as a pep talk, when in fact Christian Cage really resents the fact that Jungle Boy's ahead of him in the pecking order. I thought this week, um, especially in how he was like, and it's obviously it's a cute line. Anytime they do dinosaur stuff, it's it's a bit fun. But like even the idea that he was saying what was it like quarter Triceratops or something like you know this bit with Lichasaurus, there was the fake comfort that he was trying to establish that he's got with them because Jungle Boy lost. He's more, he's far less, like, he doesn't feel as necessary anymore to neg him. It becomes a bit like, oh, you're back where you belong. Like, there was, it was a more of a hair roughly thing. As a Sunderland fan, when we first got relegated to League One, before we became a permanent fixture there, you do that once a week. You're like, oh, bless, bless Luton. Well, come on, we'll have a nice away day. And, and then they beat us. Yeah. And it's just like, Christian's at that level now. He thinks like, oh, thank God, Jungle Boy lost. Right, I can go, I can sort of relax a little bit and I can pretend that like we're all best mates and I can make this, like I can get on this stupid dinosaur level, like Christian Cage and especially Christian, the I can't believe we're canonising CLB as a good thing here, but like the creepy little bastard would concerto Luchasaurus. He's that guy, isn't he? Like he, he hates him at his core. Um, but yeah, at this point, because Jungle Boy lost, Christian's found a new comfort level with him and it's that that is now artificial about Christian's friendship with the Jurassic Express. It, it's changed subtly from last week but in a way that's most enjoyable and the feeling in the room of, and like it is probably going to be Christian, but the feeling in the room of somebody turning is like an exciting thing that's quite unique to wrestling. You love, it's a dramatic irony that the audience gets to enjoy before actually seeing it play out. Yeah, the subtlety is the word there because it was a different kind of subtlety to last week because last week, for people paying strict attention, you kind of got like the uh, the ominous cloud appearing in the sky of, oh, Christian Cage is going to turn. But as much of a throwaway joke about it was with the Triceratops from my mother's side or whatever, 
you kind of got a little, ah, oh, people can laugh at Christian and be a baby face. Like they reined back just enough on the idea that he's going to actually turn. Mm. Yeah, like a throwaway line like that, but what it meant and what it accomplished was just absolutely great. Um, after that, um, the men of the year appeared for a chat about um, Ethan Page and Darby. And this is a bit strange, this. And uh, we've got various working theories on what informed this angle, but what an angle it was. Ethan Page cut this promo in which he was regaling the audience with all of the times he's tried to physically murder Darby Allen. He's done it in AEW. He's thrown him down the stairs. He's thrown him out of the ring. Even on the independent circuit, he just wanted rid of Darby Allen. It seems like his whole focus is to just get rid of Darby Allen. Um, and he says that because he's failed to do this and he acknowledged his failure, thereby putting over Darby Allen. They're so good at this core principle of cutting a wrestling promo. Um, he said he's going to have to mentally do it. He wants to humiliate and traumatize and affect Darby Allen with the symbolic locking in of the coffin so that whenever he tries to do the coffin drop, and this is going to be paid off in the match itself, by the way, and it's going to be absolutely wonderful. The coffin drop stuff you're going to see in the coffin match. Um, this summoned Sting. It's great to see this in front of fans, particularly since when he debuted at Winter is Coming, it didn't feel like a distance crowd at all. So the fact that it now actually isn't a physically distanced crowd, it just is absolutely immaculate. I couldn't love the aesthetic of the coffin anymore. Mm. I don't know what it is. It just works so much better as this old-timey Western thing, um, I guess because it sort of ties cinematically with the, uh, the videos that Darby Allen does. Darby Allen pops out launches himself at Ethan Page, um, scrabbles at his eye, which Ethan Page sells um, very frantically, and says that, no, no, this isn't happening at Road Rager. If you can stop yourself from um, physically attacking me, you might get it at Fighter Fest. Now, we were having a chat about this earlier, um, and we hate to bring real grim world events into um, our pro wrestling discussion. But either one or two things happened. Either they've had a very sensible idea um, to move the site of a coffin match with its con connotations um, away from a city that has suffered a very horrible real tragedy. Um, so we suspect that's the reason why they've done it, and it's very understandable. Um, but regardless of that, because I think a lot of reader, uh, listeners would probably be wanting to know, that's our working theory. Uh, what did you think of this angle? I liked it. I liked it. Um, I was more, I enjoy, I think it's something about actually being in an arena or being in a ring, but I've been pretty critical of the Darby Allen vignettes. They're not really for me, um, but I like Sting whirling about here. Some reason in my head, I can visualize like Darby Allen gets to work and dad's already in and he's like, hey, son, look at this. And he takes him out back and like he pulls a, he pulls a sheet away. And it's a coffin. It's like, oh, dad, where'd you get that? And he's like, don't matter, get in. He's like, what? Yeah. It's, like, it's got some wheels. You're coming out in this. Like, I buy that more than I buy Darby driving through a desert and picking him up or jumping off a bridge or whatever it is. Like, it just, it's something that it just feels more pro wrestling perhaps. And like, so I really like that visual. Um, I'm interested in, because this stuff is never wasted, um, I'm interested in the eyes. I, w I want to know. I feel like I was either too thick to pick something up that's already happened, or I was there to watch something that's going to happen in the future. Darby going for the eyes 
feels pointed and I'm just interested in that as a like as I'm dropping something ahead of the coffin match and yeah that the move thing obviously that's smart if it's taking a bit of care with the local audience that you're about to promote an event in front of um I didn't know about this until this morning when we had a chat about this so my feeling on it was um AW promoted so much for these shows that they can sort of get away with this it's not a it's not bait and switch to say, well, it was coming next week and now it's coming this week because at least it hasn't happened. People are probably going to buy tickets for a Darby Allen match based on what we know of him as, as a ratings draw. So maybe moving it to a show where they thought it was, you know, like less loaded with something. So, it, you know, it, it could be as related to that as it was the Miami thing. And as a card, did the Miami show need it? It was looking like, what was it? Uh, what's the, was it Revolution this year where you're like, Christ, there's a lot of subheadings to these matches. Yeah, a bit on the stipulations. That dynamite was feeling that way. So you lift a coffin match from something that's already got straps, and it's already, like there's something I, I, I can't remember to hand, but I know there's like a couple of other gimmicks on that show that they're selling. There's it's not the, the, in the world which probably should stand alone as the stipulation. I like let stuff breathe. So it's not the worst thing in the world that like you're moving this specifically, and they found a decent enough way to do it as well. Um, I didn't hear Ethan Page's way of trying to sell us on that. So yeah, like. Like a solid angle. I like, I think I'm ready for this to be finished, to, in truth. Uh, like, I'm not so big on, like, I'm not so high on the potential ghoulishness being sold to me of Alan and Page. But I, re- like, Darby Allen's going to be obviously made off the back of it and he's already. And I think ultimately it's been a success for Ethan Page. Something in the last two or three weeks has really clicked for the men of the year stuff, for Ethan Page specifically, and he's going to come out a way bigger star from this story than he was going in. So that's going to be like a net positive as well. Can you imagine if AEW were able to debut? I mean, one's more important than the other. Um, we've had like great debuts in WWE for years and it's never amounted to nout. But can you imagine if they were as good at debuting talent as they were uh, pushing and promoting and booking yeah. them? Mm-hmm. There's like a nagging feeling that this is becoming a real core issue. It's almost uh, like they don't know that they don't have to do that first. It's feeling almost like it's not obviously they're not doing it on purpose, but it is like you are aware that you can just start them hot. We're, we're good, you know. Like if you want, bring them in hot. It's so much more impressive, I guess, the way they do it, and it's so much more important the way they do it. But it's all that just get it right the first time. Just be perfect. <laughs> Asking for perfection. Uh, <laughs> really isn't that hard at all. Um, following that angle was our second match of the evening, Jungle Boy uh, versus Jack Evans. Short, um, undermined by a commercial break. Um, not a particularly great match, if I'm being honest. Uh, the story, I guess, if you want to be generous, was that Jungle Boy was presented in front of someone who he might have been compared to once upon a time, a similarly sized performer who he was very clearly positioned as being cleverer than. There was a lot of reversals in this match, um, smarter than, and he ultimately dispatched him with ease. I think this was less a match that you expected to take seriously as this dramatic contest, and you were meant to be on the hook for who wins or who loses. It was just a, a gentle continuation of this continuing Jungle Boy push, and it's a sort of thing that probably could have existed on Dark, but I'm very glad it didn't, um, because they were selling big, the idea that this is Jungle Boy's 50th win. Mm, yeah. Call a single other promotion that has ever told you how many times a person's won. 
like let alone the fact that this is the first person and what a breakthrough this is in AEW canon that someone's reached this vaunted 51st and all of this actually is substantiated by how he's been pushed recently like literally this was a fun enough forgettable enough reminder that wins and losses matter in this promotion so like I was I have very little to say about the match but I was super super high on this whole presentation really high on it um, we just talked about AEW's like a, a criticism of ours about debuts. Um, another one, a prevailing one, is the failure to, I hate that WWE have cannibalised the phrase, but build momentum after a defeat. Um, Ty Conti is a, is a glaring one of recent times, but there's loads more. You, you can make lists. We do it for a living. You can make lists of them. Jungle Boy himself was one at one point or another where you get a guy to a point and then it's really vital that that next step, even if small, is a reminder of what happened seven days ago. It's a, it's almost a promise from the company that what you saw wasn't a one-shot deal, that your investment on the night wasn't a carny trick, that you weren't fooled by the dark arts. We wanted you to invest then because we want you to invest forever. And Jungle Boy is slightly different because obviously there has been, I wouldn't call them false starts, but there's, but there's been 49 other wins, isn't there? You know, that's what we learned tonight. So like, there's, there's been 49 other times where you'd be like, right, is this going to be the start for Jungle Boy? And the 50th feels like the start for Jungle Boy because of that defeat last week. And um, it was the, and like, it probably does need to extend more to the women than the men because the women probably need it more after these title matches where they go missing or whatever. Um, you know, Thunder Rosa again after the Britt Baker match. Like another one springs to mind, right? User again as, as quick as you can. User again, please, because you gotta you gotta make all this sort of stuff count. Um, and they did with Jungle Boy. Yes, it was a fairly bland television match for a Jungle Boy Jack Evans standard. Yes, a lot of it existed to set up what you knew was coming, which was the post-match stuff between the, the war in stables and Hardy and Christian and stuff. But the main takeaway with the 50 wins record, with the so neighbor so far, like so neighbor so far thing from Kenny Omega last week, was that right, actually, like, put your faith in Jungle Boy, because this is happening now. And I just hope this was a sign that they're going to do that a lot more, um, because especially with live crowds, it's one thing when you kind of rely on the internet discourse because there's nobody in the buildings. It's quite another if you're accidentally diffusing some awesome heat one week by simply not featuring them the next. So this was a sign for me that they're, they're picking up on something that they've been getting wrong a little bit over the last couple of years. It's funny you mention um, how we now have a live crowd to measure things. Mm. Uh, but not just wading through this exhausting discourse that is amplified even when it's in good faith and just probably totally pointless when it's in bad faith. We are now getting a true reading of what's getting over and what isn't. And I noticed, um, because after um, Jungle Boy defeated Jack Evans, uh, we had a schmoz post-match angle in which the Hardy family office came to beat him down. Um, Jurassic Express arrived on the scene to even the odds. This sort of... um, was arranged that Christian and Matt Hardy could tease their future match with an interaction. I thought their work together was genuinely like really jarring and awkward, like unfathomably so considering the very best you can expect from this dynamic, or the very least rather, um, is just boring stuff performed very, very tightly. Mm. Um, they looked awkward together and there was kind of like, I didn't read any appetite for this. It didn't feel like fans were like, oh great, I've been waiting these two to lock, uh, lock horns didn't get any of that at all I thought it was like pin drop stuff um, for a really kind of wonky brawl so we are finally getting it and I mean that we kind of do go all in on Hardy on this podcast 
But I mean, this was pretty sufficient evidence that whatever he's doing, he's not presenting himself or being presented as this very respected veteran. And it's strange because he does some entertaining stuff in promos. It just feels like his in-ring career is done. Fans making the noise is far more um, it's far more objective than even like thousands of retweets. Ultimately, isn't it? You know, like it's because it's just it's a feeling that you get as a viewer that then tra- like they're, they're giving off that translates to your experience. Um, what I'm hoping that this will bring back. AW deservedly gets a lot of credit for the use of many of its legends or its legendary figures. So whether it's in beatdowns or angles or for promos or in the way in which they put over some of the younger talent in managerial roles, whatever, or even to an extent like Matt Hardy trying and Christian trying to give something of a rub, even if it's becoming more about them than about the people supposed to be giving the rub to. What the fans, I think, will be a reminder of, and this is only like a micro example of it because it's just Jungle Boy and Jack Evans, is to show AEW the biggest, biggest picture of why they exist again. And why they exist again is for two 20-year-old starlets to main event this Dynamite, not for Christian Cage and Matt Hardy to get one more round. Like, it's nobody, absolutely nobody, even on Twitter and Reddit, is calling for the big show and Mark Henry to leave the commentary table. So what you're going to see is an extension of that and fans being like the polite applause for a Matt Hardy-Christian Cage match versus the euphoric, guttural reaction for a star that bought a ticket to see. And I think it's going to be like a welcome reminder of that biggest picture that you can sort of understand why AEW lost a bit of sight of that when they're working for nobody other than other than a network, basically, other than like keeping those numbers and keeping the show afloat in a difficult time. Yeah, I mean, it's just before we move on, the worst way of looking at it, and it makes you feel so cruel when you go, oh, Christ, not this again, is that in wrestling, the more bumps you take, the more you give your body to it, the less fans care. Mm. <laughs> it's cruelty to it, but at the same time, it's not entertaining. Um, or, or interesting, so I will continue to have that take. Uh, MGF had a promo, pre-taped promo at a bar. There were issues with this that were kind of washed away in the throes of that great main event, in that he was talking way more about Chris Jericho than Sammy Guevara. And I'm thinking, have they hit play on the wrong thing here? Has he pre-recorded something ahead of a Jericho match? But no, the crack is, is that MGF is telling Chris Jericho that after he gets done with Sammy Guevara, he's going to, in an old MGF trick, which you might... It might scan as um, a bit of repetition here. I'm going to wait, right? I'm going to wait to see what the actual stipulations are um, before I can get a read on whether I like it or not. But even though it was kind of a bit of a tell on what was going to happen later on in the main event, I thought MGF's delivery here, even by his standards, was exceptional. And he just he seemed like he was furious. He seemed like he wasn't performing because he's got a bit of that in him, obviously, from his dramatic background. This didn't feel like a performance to me. It felt like he was absolutely furious. And it's kind of cathartic for someone in this process to be aware of the fact that ah, this sub-attitude era stuff's getting a little bit bloody annoying. And MGF articulated that. He was the voice. I think he described it as Looney Tunes, which was a synonym of just rubbish attitude era stuff, Chris. Hmm. Is this your best stuff? I like that meta layer because it isn't we're shooting, brother. We're not doing work shoots here and like exposing anything. But they are basically, without telling you, oh, this is what's on the format sheet, 
he's saying like, was this your best idea to get back at me? Which is basically his way of saying, is this your best creative? But it never went over the line to make it feel Russo adjacent. He's like, is this your best stuff? Like, it's crap. Is this your best stuff? Like, I really enjoyed his delivery. Jury is out on whether doing these stipulations is something that worked once, let's do it again, or whether it's like a genuine um, character motive. But he signed off by circling back to the main event of the night that he sought to promote by saying that, yeah, he's happy to be, um, he's happy for Sammy Guevara to be considered the future and putting his opponent over. He said, I completely agree, but I'm the present. And he seemed to really articulate resenting the accusation that he isn't someone who's headlined a pay-per-view, who's drawn like the number one night on cable, all of this. I thought his delivery was great, even if the me- the messaging was a little bit muddled. Yeah, I like this. Um, I think you're right. I think like the, there was something of an issue, unfortunately, um, with doing this. I guess doing this when they had to, because you're setting something up for next week. Yes. And can't. It would feel extremely insincere if knackered off the back of a main event, MJF picks up the mic and is like, "Next week, Chris Jericho, I'll give you a chance to fight me." But it, it just wouldn't feel like so they would kind of like. Force, like maybe save it for two weeks on Dynamite and then it would have felt a bit more organic right I've beaten Sammy and if you really want this here's what you're going to have to do with it. but for whatever reason they want to get to it next week it's a draw it's going to give people something to talk about you've got this um, what, <laughs> it's honestly ridiculous man they just google what they're after and put synonym after it and it's like face off standoff or whatever next week's called we've had a million of them you know the crack but like um, this is so I was talking about MJF with Andy Murray of this Paris this morning and he hit me with a take that I think has helped me understand some of my issues with the pinnacle as well as MJF which is the pinnacle a horseman obviously but MJF is not Ric Flair and that's okay but he it's funny that he said Looney Tunes because there is a cartoonish element to the type of heel MJF is which Ric Flair would only turn on when it made sense Ric Flair was Styling, profiling, limousine, riding, jet flying. MJF is not those things yet. Because, like, he's a young brat version of it. It's not earned. Like, Ric Flair had done the 60-minute matches in Little Towns against Ricky Steamboat to get those Lear Jets, whereas MJF has kind of, like, been born into it. And it's just a, a subtle difference that, like, kind of maybe undermines the messaging of the pinnacle a little bit. All of a sudden, I bought him as that here. Like him resenting Chris Jer- almost makes it look like Chris Jericho's dragged him into the cartoonish stuff rather than an MJF. If you really pick at the MJF character, it's kind of a caricature. Spoiled rich kid is a gimmick. It's something WWE were foolish not to follow up when he was trying to get on tough enough. It's that sort of thing. And so I bought a lot more of MJF as the leader of a group here because he got serious, because he was, again, he'd mentioned it once before, so resentful of the stuff that he had to do in the inner circle. And by extension, the stuff the Inner Circle have done since then. Um, it's retconning a bit, I think. You know, he was as much a part of want to do Stadium Stampede as anybody else. But, like, I, I bought it enough. And I quite like um, the... I could imagine it getting criticised, but I quite like the repetition of the Cody idea. Because it's not just Cody. He did it with Moxley. MJF is such a dick that he will make you jump through hoops just to swing a punch at him. He will try and set the scene to be as advantageous as it possibly can be for him. So like every match, like he doesn't wrestle singles matches very often, and he's like for Sammy Guevara to have to like fight off every single one of his cronies just to get to him in a singles match. He forced Cody to go through these like three trials. He's going to do something similar for Chris Jericho. He made Moxley, he thought he was onto Moxley because he was like, you can't wrestle a straight one-on-one match. 
and it just so happened Moxley could, but he was still making him wrestle on what he thought were his turns. He makes just getting to fight him like a prize within itself, and I think that's quite an ingenious, awful bastard's trick that he's applied to all his big matches, and like, so long may that continue. It just made me think, what the hell is Wardlow going to do to actually get his hands on him when that turn finally comes? Yeah. What's he going to make Wardlow go through just to get his hands on him? And I, like, I love that detail about MJF's character. Yeah, no, I'm completely in agreement um, with that. I guess I'm waiting for each three stipulation or however many there are to be as Jesus Christ incredible as how um, the ones with Cody were. It's a high standard, isn't it? It's a high, it's a high standard. So I am worried that it's totally true to his character. He, since the day he walked in to AEW with a smile on his face and a knife behind his back, his entire character, and they've been tremendously consistent with this, as they have been with so much else, is he's the master manipulator. He's been doing it since day one, virtually every single day. This is totally consistent with his character. I think part of me is just fearful of some dickheads on Twitter and who cares about them. They're the same thing. But in reality, screw that white noise. I am. I need it to be on the level of those stipulations with the Cody stuff. The key difference is Cody loves Southern stuff. So it's like cage matches, straps, blood. And Jericho is like... Right, I want to shoot you with a big gun with the bubbly in it. It's like, so it's almost like you're judged a little bit by, like even the Moxley one. Christ, sell me a pay for you on John Moxley being able to out-wrestle a guy and then he does it. He says what he's going to do and he delivers. Like, if Jericho's got in his hand and is creative, it's like, uh, are they going to turn one of these trials into like a plug for Jericho's new book? So, like, I don't need to see like, uh, I want you to burn your book in front of me, Jericho, because I know your ego's so big, where Jericho in real life is like, I'll burn one copy, but this is not Alan Partridge getting them pulped, I want to sell the rest. Like, I don't need it to like descend into more of Jericho's ideas than what, what an MJF would logically do to him. I've got the perfect challenge that Chris Jericho could not deny, and he's going to, if MJF issues this particular stipulation, um, Chris Jericho will not pass the trial. Are you ready for this? Mm-hmm. Chris Jericho, next week on Dynamite, you have to make your entrance without Judas playing. Brilliant, yeah, plays his ego. Just say, like, well, you know, no one's going to sing your song. Well, no, everyone has to sing my song. I'm not doing the match. I'm not doing the match. Steak dinner two, because you were so out of breath the first time. I'm going to knock you the second time. You're going <laughs> to eat a steak and do a song and dance number with me, and you're not allowed to take a swing, and you're going to be exhausted by the end. Chris Jericho's Homer Simpson, except he's eating the steaks in hell. <laughs> the Judas thing is at Goa, like you have to come out next week to have a match with whoever, Sean Spears, Wardlow, and you just have to come out with no music. And Jericho just like that, no match, I have to hear Judas. I have to hear Judas. <laughs> uh, we then had another interview, this time with Andrade El Idolo. I liked this in concept more than I loved it in execution. For me, there are still issues with the fact that there's a dissonance. He looks way more like the star than he feels. And it's not as if there's no substance to the act. There is. It's just, I get the feeling like something's going to click. And as we've talked about earlier, these things invariably do in AEW. So I'm not concerned yet. This was a little bit better. There was an attempt here not to just say, oh, I want this title, I want this title, I wear a suit, on, I good? They tried to do a little bit of a joke to convey the idea that Andrade El Idolo is so much more above Matt Seidel because he can't even be bothered to remember this guy's name in what I thought was quite a cute punchline, even though it was literally spoken to him. So he said, oh, Matt something, and then was it Marvez? 
who said, oh, Matt's side down. Went, yeah, yeah, Matt's something. I thought that was a cute enough line. I really did. Um, but the match was set um, for Road Rage next week. What a prospect that is. It's almost too good in that I want them to go 12 minutes balls to the wall, but is that the very best way to introduce Andrade? And maybe it is. Maybe it is. What are your thoughts on the segment in the match? Um, I, I didn't really like the segment. I, what is what is pro wrestling's problem with not being able to promote Andrade as well as a still image of Andrade promotes him? As, I, I, it's, it remains this. We talked about this morning. It, it, until AEW fix this, and they will, give it six weeks. Triple H has been the best at booking this man. How's that? Like, I just, I, I don't know. Like, they'll get there. They will get there with him. And I hope it's as early as next week when he takes his top off. Because those first physique shots that we got of him the other week, Jesus Christ. Like, yeah. dripping in cash. So, like, and, like, the picture on my laptop was dripping in something else. Like, it's, I just, let's have that. Let's have this banger. Um, I didn't think it was an accident that he was distanced from Vicky Guerrero this week. They have an opportunity here to be like, oh, really, all it was is that she was introducing me. It's a bit like, my mom's walked me to school on the first day, but I walked myself afterwards. I was just a bit scared on night one. Like, let that be the, the actuality of this and let it just be that, like, he was on his own here. Um, they gradually distanced them. Um, point to Michael Sidgwick, because fans actually requesting a bait and switch on this dynamite. Didn't get one because what you knew was that this aren't the company that bait and switch things like having, they thought it was going to be this guy. Zelina Vega was nowhere near this goddamn show. They booked a bad match and they actually delivered that bad match because they deliver what they book, even if what they book is rubbish. Um, but she could still be to come if they are, if they are working at distancing him from it. And I've got to say, I think it would really help. I still think we'll see him next week when he wrestles. Um, Great acts, a great acts for a reason. And if AEW have been given a free opportunity to put them back together, especially with the rumours that we keep hearing about you know, Tommy End, like arriving, if this is a husband and wife deal, awesome. Because put that act back together and that might be the first the first step, as well as him having this awesome match with Matt something, um, the get Andrade finally rolling. Because it still was, it didn't just, it just didn't feel enough still. That's the prevailing takeaway from yet another week of Andrade and AEW. It doesn't yet quite feel enough. Yeah, cute line. It doesn't feel like this massive megastar that is tr- that they are trying to um, depict him as is probably the fairest way of putting it. Up next, what an incredible segment this is. I was in love with it. Kenny Omega's totally dialed in, absolutely dialed into this character. He arrives for an in-ring interview with Tony Schiavone, with yet more just immaculate facial hair, mustache <laughs> slash Wolverine beard thing going on. Um, it looks like Wolverine's about to pork ginger Lynn. It's <laughs> absolutely unbelievable hubris written on his face. You can feel him in the books having chats about how big of a dickhead can we make ourselves look. And yeah. it's absolutely fabulous to look more like dickheads every single week. And Kenny Omega, the main crux of this promo is that he says he's beaten everyone. And when he lists the people he's beat in what I thought was tremendous delivery... He carried himself as an absolutely just massive superstar world champion in this segment. I thought he was great here. Presence, delivery, just the promo was so good. Because by the crux of it was, he's beaten everyone. And what a list of people he's beaten. He put over everyone he'd beaten. 
like Jungle Boy, the hottest emerging star on the planet. Pack athlete who some might say is as good as me. Orange Cassidy, one of the most popular merchandise draws we have, etc., etc. Um, he was unbelievable in doing this. And before we got to the main meat of this, he did two lines here. No, no, he did one line before we got to the meat of it and one other spectacularly funny line um, when the interruption happened. To begin this promo, right, I pissed myself at this because it's my ultimate pet hate in WWE. Michael Cole and or whoever, one of the dogs, one of the robots, will say something to the effect of, you know, I was talking um, to such and such earlier today. Rick Jones couldn't, could I? Be like, I was screaming at someone backstage! <laughs> Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Michael Cole, I was talking to such and such earlier today, and I did this purely because I'm making it up to give some exposition about their character or their character's motivations. And the worst thing is this one, you're getting told something and not shown anything, and you don't get shown anything on WWE TV most of the time. And two, just imagine your superstar baby face or your just completely narcissistic cool guy heel talking to Michael Cole and catering. <laughs> that was what his problem with our truth was earlier today. Like, what? They look like knobheads by associating with Michael Cole? The worst, <laughs> only is it a ri- ridiculous, unconvincing exposition dump, but you are, it's put in your head that Michael Cole's having chats with stars. Rubbish, 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 rubbish. Kenny Omega begins this promo before he puts everyone over by saying, you know, Tony Schiavone, me and you were having a chat earlier this morning, weren't we? And I was telling you, and then <laughs> I was thinking, all right, well, he's playing a caricature of a wrestler. This is obviously not something that happened, and it was real, revealed not to be. Tony Schiavone pulls this face, like, what are we talking about? This <laughs> conversation. And Kenny Omega's boom, steamrolled in. So he does that immaculate sub-burial of uh, Michael Cole. He puts over every challenger. He does this to tell people that there are no challengers left. This summons the Dark Order, Eva Luna, whose poise and his charm in his delivery was fantastic as well. And he says, no, 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 Kenny, I think you'll find that there is a number one ranked guy 
who's definitely got the credentials to take you on and he can beat you. But before the strong illusion is made, Kenny Omega decides to look at these um, Dark Order stable members. He's like, well, which one is it? Which one is it? Then he points towards five, Alan Angels, and he says, him? Five? He couldn't go two minutes with me. Wonderful. For those who don't know, uh, Ryan Satin buried a Kenny Omega match that was worked in an empty gym with a skeleton crew with the roster. I believe it was like 27%. Um, Mookie did the numbers, Chris Harrington, because he course he did. We were working with 27. Three weeks into the pandemic. Three weeks into the pandemic. With either 27% or 33% or in that range of their roster. Um, of course, Kenny Omega wasn't going to have a competitive match with someone... There were very few storylines to build because they didn't know when people were coming back. I think, all things considered, Kenny Omega probably was okay to go six whole minutes and give a little bit of offense to Alan Angels. Um, Brian Satin, and I think Wade Keller or Mike Johnson, people disagreed. It was a whole tiresome thing. And Kenny Omega just completely buried what a ridiculous thing it was with an absolutely fantastic line. When it's revealed that it's not, in fact, Alan Five Angels, who's got the credentials, it dawns on Omega. Oh, him? Hangman Page? Look, you might believe it. These fans might believe it. He doesn't believe it. It was time... It was time to make this beat explicit. And it's not... They didn't even mention Hangman Page by name in this segment, by the way. It's still subtle. It's still not completely on the nose. But it was time to really make this explicit because this is going to sell a pay-per-view or maybe even a TV show. And there's kind of an awkward moment when the segment simply ends. But that downbeat note works because even if it was more awkward than intended, there was no Hangman Page to come out on the horse or, you know, with his waistcoat on to lay down the challenge because he's not mentally prepared to do that. What did you make of all this? Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah, love the um, love the gags at, you know, those guys' expense with the Alan Angels joke. Um, loved that. I'm sure there's various influences, but you were allowed to think of Triple H in the Reign of Terror as Kenny Omega, like, engages in an enjoyable version of the Reign of Terror, a proper heel champion that you want to see getting beat with his handlebar, moustache and beard look. So just fantastic. Um, I loved that Hangman Page didn't come out. Loved it. Um, you've got to, you've got to, if anything, like, I don't know if we just jump to this next. Um, I'm so into this, and I think everybody else is too, and I think this is one this is one for the hardcores that they're now introducing to the casuals. I know there was that awful discourse about casuals, but my opinion is just people that just will watch, take it, and then forget about it. Not the awesome people that listen to this podcast or spend some time on Twitter or look at extra details or whatever. Um, this was for everybody. This was Kenny Omega and Hangman Page for everybody, no longer just for the most dedicated uh, AEW fans. And great, because you've got to sell a pay-per-view with it one day, so it had to make that jump. Uh, so I loved Hangman Page not coming out because it told enough of the story without overreaching. Um, you didn't like this comparison last year, and I completely understand that, but I remember when we were both, like, I was just completely in love with the Sasha and Bailey story, and, like, you were big on this one, even how they were telling it, you know, both stories in the pandemic. But one of the things I really loved about one of the details of that story was that Bailey turned on Sasha and then said, did you think I just didn't see you looking at the belt? Because it wasn't patronising. Like, she was wise to it. Of course she was. Kenny Omega being the one who kind of, like, bring this up. 
not before the Dark Order, but I, like I think I know who you're talking about, as deluded and as head in the clouds as he's been as this world champion, he needs to acknowledge that Hangman Page has been the guy all along. And I just really appreciated that as well. They didn't have to do that. They could, this Kenny Omega could have easily been like, who? Who the hell have you got? And then they, they da-da, it's Hangman Page, and he's nowhere to be found. And then Kenny would be like, oh, that guy. But he's not. It's been in the back, it's been playing in the back of his mind the entire time. You know, he walked away from that tag team, he stood back and let Hangman Page fall to the ground, and it's been in the back of his mind ever since. And I just loved that detail. They are not missing with any of this. And they didn't miss with the Hangman Page segment that followed. I just love it so much, I could have had it next week. I could have had Hangman Page, like, not seethe, but being forced to think about this for seven days and then show me his reaction to the Dark Order. But again, I think this was very much the week that they reintroduced Kenny versus Hangman to everybody. And I think that's, I understand why they did it as well. For me, I would have happily wondered for a week what Hangman Page thought about it. I might have even tuned into being the elite in the hope that he would appear on it and then, then keep him off it because I was that on the hook for like, what's Page going to think about this? His name's out there now. That he can't escape this thing that he's been trying to pretend isn't happening. Um, so yeah, loved it. Just loved it. Yeah, I mean, absolutely tremendous. And I think what's so great about making it, in an, making this an explicit storyline beat this week is that I've had conversations with people who weren't necessarily as high as hell on all of this. I think this paid off the culmination of this, like, that's such a quiet, it's like a whispered build. It's all in the subtext. And I think when it's finally become a thing, you realise how potent um, a form of storytelling this has been. Look, this is preview stuff for next week, but there's going to be one more heartbreak. And I don't know what it is, but I'm ready to be devastated by this. I'm ready to be heartbroken to, uh, quote, camera obscura. Who <laughs> will get that? Three people, and they've all got very good taste. Um, speaking of good taste, um, Miro was up next defending his TNT title with Brian Pillman Jr. in what was... We talk a lot about TV matches and how they're a distinct genre and how sometimes they're predictable. They serve to build and build and build in plain sight almost your TV star ahead of what they really, really do. This was almost the platonic ideal of a TV match. Miro has got a new theme. It makes him look like a, well, sound, appear like a god. It is so ominous. It is so terrifying. It is so... Like superior and otherworldly. It's magnificent. He's got the best nickname in all of wrestling. He's the Redeemer now. <laughs> Unbelievable character presentation. And he murders Brian Pillman Jr., as expected. But not before an absolutely great hope spot. Brian Pillman Jr. Um, overwhelmed him earlier. Early in the match, sorry. Right at the beginning because he knew like he's going to have to fight him. He's going to die. He's on the way to the slaughter, so he has to put up a fight. He has to give him his best early. Miro then takes control, yeets this like stocky, not inconsiderably sized individual, just at his will. It's incredible to see how strong and intense this Miro character is. His facial expressions throughout are outstanding. He does the bolo chung from Bloodsport, making it look like he's going to keep this guy's shin bone um, out of his leg. Sorry to go a little bit Owen Hart there. Then Brian Pillman Jr. gets a hope spot, and he's so fired up, and he timed everything so well that he, even when he botched the timing of something, it didn't really matter. He tried to do the drop kick through the ropes, and he almost completely fell on his arse, but it just sold how desperate he was, and how you need to be desperate to yeah. fight against this man. 
it was almost like bittersweet in a way watching it because you knew it wasn't going to happen. No matter how much resolve he showed, he was always going to tap out of the accolade. But what I thought was a wonderful, wonderful finish, they give you the slightest tease that Pillman was actually going to escape. But this, the more and more he tried to get out of it, the more vulnerable he was to the sick, like, tweak on the um, the game over, sorry. Uh, I don't have to trademark it, the accolade, whatever you want to call it. And then just wrenched it back in. And what a way to put over this finish. I thought this finish was great because it just makes the game over look like that's probably not worth escaping. <laughs> yeah. If he can modify it to make it look like your spine is going to bend to even more of a disgusting angle, you're probably better off just sitting there. Do you remember when um, Beth Phoenix made Melina kick her own head? Yes. Miro is gifted so many wrestlers that can be bent almost double to get this move. He's on a roster of people that want to test like how good their DDP yoga practice has been going and just how far back they can get their spines to get this move over. He's so blessed with people that are going to do this. And it just capped off another stunning presentation of the Miro character that does like almost as much for the guy he's destroying as it does for him. They are nailing this. They are, to use your comparison point, they are February 2020 in Miro. Like, this is impeccable presentation of a pro wrestling uh, champion, a heel, a dominant figure. Uh, It comes very close to the, like, episodic giant that we've said is, like, almost impossible to pull off. Um, It's fantastic. Like, the the bit where, um, like, Miro was selling doing like Andre selling, but then because he's Miro, fires back with a roundhouse kick. And yeah. it's like, Andre couldn't do a roundhouse kick. He could stagger back and wiggle his arms. Like, and look like he could. He was seeing flying birds in front of his pace. Like, but then he's got a roundhouse kick. And he's like, oh, Jesus, you don't, you forget that Miro's that guy because for a second you're locked in at the guy that he's a giant that has to be slayed. Pillman was amazing. Um, I don't want to put all of this on a really... Like heart wrenching, but then by the end, heartwarming appearance on that fantastic Dark Side of the Ring special on his dad. But wrestling's a strange industry, and you never know what's going to help you, and you never know what's just going to just going to tilt things in your favour. And it was impossible not to. It's strange, isn't it? We know everything about Brian Pillman because we know who Brian Pillman's dad was, and yet um, being told it down a lens has humanised him in a way that was never quite as. I don't know. It wasn't as potent when he was wearing his dad's jackets. Mm. Something. I, I don't know why it's different, but it is. He's gone from being too close to a tribute act to being like to having the heartbreak of being a second generation star as this like flawed icon. And it just adds such incredible heft to his cell as a baby face. He's channeling frigging sting in 88 with those comebacks as well. Um, AW, as we saw in last week's main event, is a promotion that loves long flowing hair. So that's going to benefit him very well. Um, like a brilliant night for Pillman in defeat, which only puts over how fantastic Miro is in this role as well. What a triumph all of this was. Yeah, a total triumph. And it's consistent with the idea that this turnaround of Miro's is a triumph. The best way I can articulate just how incredible a job they've done with Miro and virtually everything else is that on one hand, you've got a invincible looking, convincing as all hell, really, really badass like cinematically badass heel in Miro who you don't want to see drop the title yet and realistically you can't imagine anyone taking it off him when he's in this form and in this mood 
And yet, there's like a million baby faces that people are pitching left, right, and saying, oh, he should be the one, he should be the one, he should be the one. All those baby faces are credible. All those baby faces are over. All of them are incredibly well booked. All of them are totally different. Yeah. Like, Darby Allen, Orange Cassidy, completely different. But the baby faces, Jungle Boy, more different still. Phoenix, Pack. It's just the best promotion on the planet. And tonight, all his fantasy booking actually works, isn't it? And uh, you give him the belt and then beat everybody. And it's yeah. like, what's that? But you don't want him to beat those people, but you can't see him not. It's just Miro's awesome. And Miro brings into focus how awesome AEW is at its best. Um, we'll skip past what was next. It was the Hangman Page uh, Dark Order thing, which we've kind of touched upon, in which he stormed backstage and kind of bollocked the Dark Order. Um, but basically, the Dark Order said, like, look, the problem isn't that you're scared of Kenny Omega. It's that you're scared of failure. We are here to build you up because we believe that not only can you beat him, but if you fail, you've got a support network now. You've got the support. Just, we said it's just they're making overt the details that have been there all along. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and you know it's. I think rather than annoy people with the exposition, oh, we know this. I think it's just clarified how great this has been, which is really quite tremendous when you think about it, because a lot of people could have rolled their eyes, but you kind of have to bring this to the forefront at a certain point. You've got things to promote, and I thought they did it very effectively. Taz was next. Taz was great. The match announced was great. Hook spoke, so that was great. Taz is basically saying, yes, there are some problems. We're not idiots. We know and realize there's tension in the group. But sometimes two alphas have just got to lock horns to settle the differences. So for one of the fighter fests, I think, in Texas, which is where um, Ricky Starks was um, doing his local indies and where he's a big deal um, to that cult devoted audience, he's going to face Brian Cage for the FTW title. What a match that's going to be. Oh, I love Taz trying like to pitch this as them like fighting their issues out of their system. Ultimately, the, we're going to get this like everyone's going to get things off the chest. We're going to have a fight and we're all going to have points afterwards where we really know what he's doing, which is setting up all of these goddamn rats to eject Brian Cage from Team Taz to liberate the FTW title from a guy that Taz no longer trusts to hold it because we know like what high regard he holds this ultimately meaningless belt in and he no longer respects Brian Cage. And I, I just love this so much because it's proper, like ultimately Vincent Mann ruined every giant he ever turned babyface because he turned him into dancing fools. But the first time they turn is amazing because it's Slick or Harvey Whippleman or whoever, like getting shooed away because they're rats compared to these giants. These men are Homer Simpson, Decked out in gold and 100 foot tall. They don't need rat little managers. That's that. Like, What's different about you, Homer? Oh, yeah. You're the biggest guy in the world now. <laughs> <laughs> they don't need rat little managers like Slick or Taz or whoever. They just need to be themselves. And Brian Cage getting to be this machine and like he's going to get turned on and that's going to be awesome. Team Tat, like Hook. Like Hook's great, right? Like, and I know he's a meme and like he's pretty jacked. And that's pretty cool. But, like, look at Hook and look at Brian Cage. And Hook getting in cheap shots on Brian Cage. I mean, like, yeah, do you like it, Dad? Did you see what I got him in the ribs, Dad? That sort of stuff. Like, they're going to build the perfect revenge arc for a babyface Brian Cage to want to get some revenge on this. I, I just I just love it. I, I love that you're allowed to see something like that and it be so close to the probable reality. 
Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Ah, oh. Everything's usually good, right? Everything's pretty damn great on this show thus far. MJF, Kenny Omega, great promos. Taz, great promo. Opening was just a wonderful hybrid of a match and an ankle. The crowd's white hot. The storytelling is absolutely fantastic. And then all of this form is maintained because it's Rebel and Rick <laughs> Tyler Rose and Tia Trinidad making her debut. <laughs> what a phenomenal bait and switch that everyone expected to happen. That was always going to happen. Relax, guys. Everything's great because the initials make it. So, yeah, I thought um, Trinidad looked great in the debut. What did you think, Hamlet? Loved the uh, Hurricane Rana through the table at the end. Uh, couldn't believe they'd saved the big spot for her, but fair play that they did. I mean, we're being facetious. I'm, yeah. I'm just an arsehole. What actually happened is that Vicky Guerrero actually had a match in a ranked promotion. And funnily enough, despite the admitted pop of the side gag of Vicky Guerrero wearing like a mask that made tried to make her look hard. And she has a way with a face of doing the Guerrero shimmy where she just makes it look awful. <laughs> um I, I did laugh. I did laugh at those bits, and then I got in a mood there. Eh? I got in a mood because this sucked. This was so bad. The general gist is that Dr. Britt Baker left Reba to the Wolves. Um, didn't want any part of Nyla Rose, so she just jumped off the apron, um, leaving Reba not Rebel, Rebel not Reba, whatever, at the mercy of Vicky Guerrero, who did one like for her half impressive pin. And I'm thinking, is the destroyer happening? Is the destroyer happening? <laughs> then no, it isn't. No, it isn't. Because Nyla Rose comes in to do some stuff for Rebel, and then you get a lot of bollocks. That honestly is the very best thing I can say about this, is that it was so short, lethargic, and poorly arranged. I can barely remember any of it. If it was that horrendous... I'd be like, oh, this bit sucked. No, that bit sucked. It was just something that sucked and sucked quickly and quietly. Um, you did get a pretty decent exchange between Rose and Baker at the finish. And um, they've had a very good match before, so I expect um, the actual singles match to be no different. All of this is pretext for Nyla Rose to, in a pretty great bump, that uh, you can really enjoy because of what preceded it, but a pretty great bump in isolation. Um, Nyla Rose, Beast Bombs, Baker through a table. Who's the baby face? Who's the heel? Why should I care about the stakes when they don't seem to? Who am I meant to be cheering for? Why is it about burgers? Why does all of this suck on foot? This was no good for a lot of reasons. And rather than it being the individual reasons, that's the central problem, is that there was a lot of reasons why this was no good. Um, it was no good because it existed um, in the first place people shouldn't, and I know you've dealt with all this, people absolutely shouldn't be welcoming bait and switches. They shouldn't be welcoming these types of surprise. This is the wrong type of surprise. If you want to put a silhouetted graphic, somebody has come, gab on me, you know, somebody has come into AW, see you in three weeks, fine. Like, do not sell me on a Vicky Guerrero appearance in the pretense of it being a replacement. And, like, as fans, be better than to expect that. Like, learn as fans that it's okay to expect what you're getting promoted, even if what you're getting promoted is poor. And that's what this was. This was, a, like, this was poor at its foundations. Um, and, you know, this is not like after-the-fact stuff. We covered a lot of this in the preview yesterday. None of this felt good, and none of it played out as being any good. Britt Baker, in that fantastic promo she cut 
um, where she basically laid out the inevitable for Hikari Shida that she was going to lose at double or nothing, said, the last year is about 316, this one's about D, M, D. And people received that as they were meant to, which was like this era-defining moment, you know, I'm going to turn the corner for this division. Steve Austin got eight months with Bret Hart and a match that changed the entire course of the industry to execute a double turn. Britt Baker has been given a bad Vicky Guerrero match and cheeseburger jokes. Like, they were trying to use this to gradually pivot Britt Baker. They know that Britt Baker is going to get cheered. They saw how that DMD promo was received. The fans didn't play along at double or nothing because they just refused to because Britt Baker has, be- has become beloved. So it's artful. It's like, it's a really artful process pivoting from becoming a popular heel to being a babyface that hasn't lost any of that cool. And this was like a horrendous misfire at attempting to do that. Um, in the same match where they were trying, at least I think I took it as they were trying to get you to accept Britt Baker as the de facto babyface because fans love her and we've watched her journey and we've watched how much she's deserved this spotlight as the women's champion during the pandemic, completely turned her career around. This is the problem, isn't it? You turn your career around by becoming a heel, but the very act of turning your career around is a babyface trait. Yes. So ultimately you arrive at this crossroads and it's so difficult to do um, that they've managed to try and arrive at that with the fan base while booking the match of Britt Baker sending her partner in to take the punishment. The most cowardly of heel things to do from like eight months ago. This is the sort of stuff that she was doing against Big Swole when she was supposed to be a heel. Where you to imagine fans in the arena booing her. Like entitled dentist, you know, that like is too big for her boots, all that kind of stuff. Like now you're trying to turn her and you're still doing that. You're still doing that lame comedy stuff between them. Um, it just, none of it worked. Like, no, like the presentation, it didn't work. Nyla Rose and Britt Baker, I fear, is going to go the same way because they're going to again... Like, Britt Baker's going to be the baby face in it, but they're going to try to have her do heelish stuff so not to betray that character. And, like, this was an indication that they haven't really mastered it. And I, and I don't know the answer because Hart and Austin's a masterpiece end-to-end, and it's really, really tough to do it. And I'm, I'm not so sure how they're going to get there with it in this Nyla Rose match because this was evidence to suggest that the, the chemistry between them isn't going to, isn't going to marry up. If anything, like... I'm not calling for a rematch, but you need somebody like a Shida that feels like a threat to something new. You need somebody to make you feel. If there's a villain in that division who wants Britt Baker's title because she wants it, that you can just present as, oh, Christ, I hope Britt Baker doesn't lose because she's hardly had it a month. Like, Nyla Rose, as, based on this evidence at least, and I think the match will be fine too, but in terms of what they're trying to achieve with Britt Baker, Nyla Rose ain't it. And, like, I, I don't know, I was... I was disappointed. This was rubbish, and I expected it to be rubbish. But there was more here that I didn't want to see about them like stumbling with the Britt Baker babyface turn. I, I like was really disappointed with that. I think that, I think they're better than this. This is the Austin works your goal bit. One would one would hope, but yeah, I don't know. They haven't landed. I don't think on what to do with Baker yet. Uh, do you no sell the reaction? Do you sort of grit your teeth through this clumsy, organic ish? Evolution? Do you just position her as a heel and challenge her? Get, get heat. If you're this good, get some heat. Um, I've got no idea what I'm meant to be receiving, and to be honest, I'm not entertained by either prospect at present. Uh, so yeah, we get the table stuff, um, and then we get um, an inner circle backstage promo, hyping up what I'm happy about because as much as I'd like to see FTR versus Santana and Ortiz. 
first just as a tag team match or instead get the trios where it's going to be FTR and uh, Wardlow is it? Yeah. No, FTR and Wardlow yes versus Hager Santana and Ortiz what I like about that is that it um, hypes up the tag team match that's going to happen in itself but at the same time what's happened with with AEW's approach what tends to happen sometimes is that certain acts don't really mesh together well because they don't do the right will do four matches in four different towns and perfect it ahead of the pay-per-view or TV and with FTR particularly that early one had a match with Lucha Brothers and they had the odd match where it was like you've never worked these before and I can really quite tell when I'm watching so I'd rather have any kinks ironed out of this dynamic which the the high end of the potential is enormous in a trios match before we get to the tag so I think this is this is astute booking that doesn't just feel like an obligation to get to the bit where they can iron everything out because it'll be a really entertaining dynamic. What do you think of the promo? I thought Hager was class. Yeah, the, Hager, it's funny, isn't it, when the less is more thing with Hager almost always works if he's either just staring there behind Jericho or if he's screaming because he's a bit weird. There's a, there's a, like, there's that bumpkin quality to him that I think they really get the best out of sometimes. I'm reminded of like the, was it the bubbly bunch where he was awesome in that as well? Yeah, like it's just sort of, yeah. it, he, they know how to get the best out of him. I like this match. Um, I like it more after the fact, I think. I've got a lot of faith in this being very, very good. Um, the pinnacle and the inner, what this was, if I'm being brutally honest, like I'm still pretty exhausted with pinnacle inner circle stuff. And I need to be like sold back on it again. I was certainly sold by it in this main event. But like, I, like I think I'll enjoy this match way more than they can sell it to me. Um, I'm already thinking about ways in which FTR like are going to interact with Wardlow in in ring. I'm really excited about an FTR tag match again. I've yeah. like let's have some of them, like way more of them than we've been getting. Um, like the idea of one thing I thought about was like. Santana and Ortiz trying to show that they're as good as FTR. So like trying to isolate one of them, like, you know, oh, we can cut the ring up. We're not, we're not these thugs that you've painted us as. Like we, we're tag team specialists too. We just, you know, we like, we're just a bit more authentic and we're not so bothered about the Midnight Express like you two are. Yeah. And um, like, say for example, FTR isolate one of them or like, like the, one of the FTRs gets the legs worked so that Wardlow's the guy like that's lifting up for an even higher shatter machine. Or something like, you know, because like they can, they can interact, they're a stable, they're a group. So I'm already thinking about trios, spots, and like, I think that's quite a nice way to like bring FTR back into the fold. It's, it's a match I think I'll be full of praise with. I just, you know what all this is. It's all of it now is set dressing for the big Jericho MJF match, but they kind of, they've arrived at where they arrived at because they've done every version of it already. So. No, I'm banging to this. Banging to the trios match. As I said, like the idea of them just, feeling out the chemistry before you get the actual tag. The fact that Wardlow's in it always helps. Um, I put over Hager there because he's class, but really Santana's promo was amazing because they often are. So I'm mm. bang this, and of course it uh, feeds into this promo that is the main event of the show, MJF versus Sammy Guevara. I'm looking at that time and I'm thinking, whoa, it's an indication, isn't it? You know, they're going long. They want this to get over. And the best thing about this match, the best succinct take I can have on it before I give you a rundown of the story and the result etc is that Chris Jericho was big time on the hard sell at the booth this is a match that's going to headline the pay-per-view this is a match that is such a great commendation of what everything we're doing in AEW because we've got these two young stars and they're doing the main event and they're having a blow away classic and all the rest of it Jericho was selling this hard and in the end 
he didn't have to. There was one moment in the match where Chris Jericho is so good at a certain perspective, shall we say, from commentary. This is a guy who's a master manipulator of crowds, whose entire being exists to like bask in crowds. He's obsessed with crowds. He was looking at the crowd. He's like, look, they're all standing up. They're all standing up. When this match heated up, and it heated up in amazing fashion. I didn't notice until Jericho pointed out, Jesus Christ, literally everyone above that um, balcony bit is standing up. Yeah. So the story of the match, which I thought was really clever, and maybe I'm going to be a little bit higher on the finish because I've realised that loads and loads of heat, as we saw in the earlier, is worth it in the end. The story of the match initially is that they are having a technical dick measuring contest in which they are leapfrogging each other's, leapfrogging each other over each other's stuff. Uh, there was one minor hiccup, but they recovered very nicely. And then there were several different pin attempts, pin attempts, um, rope run evasions, all the rest of it. They are putting over the idea, one, these guys are very, very similar. Maybe they are both the present and not just the future, to quote, uh, to paraphrase and echo back to what MJF was saying. And then I think the story bit here, at least how I interpret it, interpreted it was MJF was rising to the challenge of right okay I'm not going to be a complete dick I'm going to better you because I'm better than you and you know it so they were working the same kind of style and the same kind of wavelength almost shockingly like a gentleman sport and context uh, contest then it mutated into this wild like even by AEW desensitized in-house standards some of the stuff they did to sort of build the match and the story of how much they hate each other was spectacular the Spanish fly was really well done. The springboard Canadian destroyer was incredible. The spot where Sammy Guevara, and it's always amazing when MGF takes this because what we know about his character and how he can sell taking this kind of offense just makes it mean so much more than X, Y, and Z person doing it does. Sammy Guevara's springboard dive over the barricade wasn't just this amazing leap wasn't just this amazing feat of athleticism the impact it was like it was a missile mm. there was one spot that i can't defend i think but what's still great about it is that what came after was so good the second rope to the second rope tombstone the way they actually arrived at the spot was so organic there was none of this like really coordinated contrived struggle it was just like in the moment oh my god he's going to do this I think they should have sold that more and delayed the pin count because it was very quick. Felt a little bit PWG on telly. But MGF's selling of the knee after the fact was tremendous. It really felt like a different kind of struggle. It felt like all the mad stuff they had done early in the match was like delayed in the selling. Um, thought that was tremendous. And then later on in the match, Sean Spears comes out. And in an echo back to last week, he's a decoy for Wardlow. Um, or is that the other way around? I can't really remember. I watched it yeah, off. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And MGF, cra- uh, sorry, Sean Spears cracks Sammy Guevara in the head with a chair. They'll have a singles match, no doubt, at some point. They get liberal with these headfirst chair shots, like. Hmm. They are getting liberal with those, I will say that. MGF exhausted, still selling that knee brilliantly makes the cover, and again, the nicest thing I can say about it is that Chris Jericho was determined, bound and determined to sell this as this, one of the best matches in Dynamite of the year, 
as this legitimate illustration of what a good company AEW is and how great MJF and Sam Guevara are. He was intent on selling it to me, and I bought it. What did you think? Yeah, I so I didn't. I like this match a lot. It wasn't it, for me. It doesn't like enter the upper echelon of like the best Dynamite matches ever, which is an incredibly high standard, by the way, or even like maybe the best Dynamite matches this year, of which again the standard is also really high. Um, but it was more about uh, what it this what it represented. This was this was the elevator pitch of AEW for me, um, especially considering the, the theme of the episode, and we're going to get onto that next, I guess. Um, the end of this particular period in Daly's place and a celebration of, and it was a celebration of AEW because obviously they believe everything they do is right. And I think it's interesting that you isolated the chair shot as a particular thing that they're maybe not doing right because ultimately we're about two years on from Cody taking that one to the head and a lot of fears at the time have been realised. This is fundamentally a backstep in what wrestling knows about CTE and in terms of desensitising when that matters and when that should really count, you know, same with blood, same with other stuff that they've maybe been a little too excessive with. But what those excesses have also brought is a match of this standard between two guys that, like most, and I don't mind admitting to this, like two and a half, three years ago, MJF was on All In, but two and a half, three years ago, I'd have not known who these were. I'd have not known why I needed to care about these guys, for example, and yet it was all here for me to see. Um, the match was of such a high standard that you're not just watching this match and thinking these are the stars of tomorrow, these are the like elite tier workers of today, then doing Sammy Guevara especially is doing this futuristic style that AEW knew had to be part of its sales pitch, but MJF is levelling up, but still doing all the traditional heel stuff that AEW also realised they needed because WWE had abandoned it. So again, it just felt like this perfect, crystallised presentation of why AEW exists and I thought, what a time to have this match, because AEW's about to embark on a lot of brave new ventures, loads of major shows that need huge main events, Rampage starting on Friday night, back out on the road where they're going to need to sell out buildings. Um, it's going to be like a proven ground period now for AEW in the aftermath of a pandemic. A pandemic that, again, is like foreshadowing what we're about to talk about, they have done a better job with than any wrestling company in the world. They've almost made it an art form in and of itself. Um, and yeah, there was just a, there was a, again, vibes. There was just vibes, good ones at that in the air for this entire thing. Um, in terms of analyzing the match, MJF is like really underrated. Yes, really underrated. The, um, the Jungle Boy match was a, a, a big moment for that, but this was another one. Um, his singles matches on the, his built two singles matches, um, are starting to feel more and more special. Uh, the Jericho match isn't going to be as good as this was. Like it's like this quality wise, this is this is better than the Jericho match can possibly be, I think. Um because Jen, MJF can absolutely level up to the likes of a Guevara. He just knows when to and he knows that he doesn't always need to. And I thought this was absolutely spot on. Um love the fake injury stuff. Not only because it like it allows for so many more like in universe character bits, like Tony Schiavone being the most raging. Like this guy's a goddamn scumbag, he'd fake an injury. Like Tony Schiavone, the nicest guy in the world, the grandpa of professional wrestling, has so much hatred in his heart for MJF that he, like, doesn't want to be sympathetic to him potentially being injured. And it just reminds you that this is real to all these people. Everyone's their own little version of Bret Hart because they make all of this feel real. That's great. Um, so, yeah, as a presentation, I just couldn't have been happy with how all this looked. Right down to the finish, which, you know, 
MJF's got to win like this because that's the very reason he said he needed a stable. Yes. All of this is rooted in him coming out and saying, oh, I get how people get things done around here. They've got friends. I guess I'm going to have to make some friends. And then obviously he gets in, he's the snake within the inner circle and he gets his own group. You've got to, you've got to justify that. You've got to vindicate all of that. You know, if MJF doesn't win like this, then he didn't need the pinnacle all along. So, it, I, like, I'm fine with the finish too. It's an excellent point, and I'm fine with it as well. As I said, I really liked how the beginning informed it. He's a manipulator. This is at the heart of the MJF character. He's been manipulating since day one. His almost acceptance of, right, Sammy, I'm going to wrestle you. It's just going to be a one-on-one wrestling match. We are going to do incredible, fast, counter-driven wrestling at the start of this. Just made Sammy Guevara vulnerable to this dickhead ambush that he was always going to do, if you're paying attention. As you know, the best podcasts. Best podcast <laughs> podcasters. I really shouldn't have flubbed that line because it kind of betrays what I was saying. But <laughs> no, I thought this was great. Um, and I think it helped as well. I know what you're saying. It's so true to MJF's character and his actual motivation. What's my motivation? Well, this is his motivation and he's articulated it at the end of this match. Um, yeah, I think because there's been a lot of heat, people might lose sight of the fact that, no, it's his character. This is what he's been telling you he has to do to be a champion. This is very true to everything that's already happened. Um, but yeah, the spectacular payoff to a lot of the heat we saw earlier in the night made me want more heat, which I never thought I'd be saying like two or three weeks ago. That wasn't the end of the show. I can't talk much about this, Hamza. I was in buckets of tears uh, this morning. <laughs> Seriously, whenever I see um, Brody Jr., in the ring with his dad's boots like a kid has showed more strength than I probably have in my entire life him doing that I don't labour too much on this video um, other than they did pay wonderful tribute again to Brody Lee he was such an enormous part of the pandemic era which this video sought to say goodbye to if I'm being perfectly honest um, a wrestling promoter is not going to tell me um, when a pandemic's over so I'm still, there's a little part of me with AEW and WWE going back on the road. Like, I think virtually every American has made their mind up on whether they want the vaccine or not. And not enough of them have been vaccinated. So that's a little bit scary, if I'm being honest. I think it's maybe too soon to call all this. But if you put that to one side, um, what a stunning production and direction and how artful this video was. It began with Cody. How empty did that look, by the way, in this video? even emptier than it did at the time. Yeah, like I was astonished by that. It's like, it just looked so much more empty than it did at the time. It goes to a highlight reel of the very best of the pandemic moments, like these impossible creative moments that they did. And even beyond that, they still made real wrestling feel not mm-hmm. completely depressing, even though they found several creative outlets to try and disassociate you from what wrestling used to be and how it depressingly isn't anymore. They did virtually everything that could possibly be expected of any wrestling promotion to actually make this feel like a necessary form of escapism, as unnecessary as we kind of knew it was um, at the start of the pandemic. And it ends with footage of the crowds coming back to Daly's place. It's genuinely stirring. It's genuinely wonderful. There's still that grey cloud for me over the head of all of this. But maybe that that maybe that's not going to go away for years. Variants and vaccine hesitation and the like. But um, yeah, what did you make of it? Well, actually, one thing I'll say is that can you imagine WWE doing this for the Thunderdome? Nope. 
I mean, they could maybe squeeze 10 matches on. By the way, you can see the 10 best matches of Thunder Dome here at whatculture.com forward slash WWE if you want to look. Um, I, I, I love this so much, and I'll be honest, I didn't think about it in those terms, about the end of the pandemic, which is a, a fair point. I was able to bookend this as a, a daily's place thing, which again is cheeky because they're back there in August, but we have to, it's pro wrestling, you know. I loved the bones of this thing. Um I was going to say, like, apologies for getting a bit indulgent, but it's a podcast. Like, what else do they exist for? Um, I, like, you go back and listen to our reviews of the 2019 Dynamites. I just wasn't as high on this product as as you were. I didn't, like, I liked it. I kind of objectively assessed good wrestling. I, just, I wasn't feeling it. I fell in love with AEW in 2020. Like, head over heels in love with it. First time you clap eyes on WWF when you're a kid in love with it. And it, I remain, like, wowed by that, that they did it in this era, in this period, you know, like wrestling should have chased everybody away and WWE certainly chased hundreds of thousands. Um, and I just fell in love with a, a period in AEW's history that they very neatly packaged for me as you are permitted, if not to feel like things are finished, you were permitted to feel optimism about the future. I think in timing and execution, if you're able to isolate this to, this is not goodbye to the pandemic this is goodbye to Daly's place as a spiritual home for a tough time. It almost like, I know I'm being a bit cheeky there, but it kind of isolates one from another a little bit. It's like sort of probably better choice of word than isolate as well. But um, yeah, Daly's place was a thing and it was a necessity. And look what happened out of this necessity. Like look at this beautiful time period that occurred out of this necessity for wrestling fans. Um, of a product that we sat on podcasts and argued didn't need to exist. You know, ultimately, we're probably glad it did, but we were there struggling to really understand why wrestling felt itself essential in the early days. And I look back on this now and I can be like, well, maybe I was a bit wrong because maybe it was quite essential. Maybe I was clinging on for Wednesdays at points because of the clips they were showing here. And something that I think, aside from the pandemic and aside for, you know, ultimately why we were in an empty building in the first place doing this, WWE were incredible, incredible in the early 2000s, spotting that the golden era was over of making video packages that made you appreciate that it had happened. The desire videos, the lonely road of faith, Kid Rock. I hate the record. I hate the sentiment behind the song. I hate Kid Rock. But that video is incredible. It's absolutely amazing. They put together something that was like, oh, that's why I love this. That's why I'm stuck with this, because Christ, it gave me some feelings once upon a time, you know. Um, and that was in like 2002. I think it was like about the NWO coming in. And it was like, I'm already on the blooms off the rose. But look at this. Wrestling's a show that never ends. So it behooves a company to force these eras in, to make you feel like there's an ending. And AEW have just made an era from an amazing period of their history, an amazing period by producing this video they have made people accept this. You could sell T-shirts now with a clip from this video and say 2020 to 2021, Daily's Place, we love you, we'll never forget you, that sort of stuff. And wrestling struggles to do that because it's like, here's the biggest thing ever. And then when it's finished, but the real biggest thing ever is next week. Yeah. So it's really wise stuff. You are creating fans forever with stuff like this. Like forever, a 10-year-old will stick with this brand. And I'm speaking from experience long after they shouldn't because of stuff like this, in my opinion. And I thought like, so I was able to very earnestly appreciate it, but I was able to see it for like really wise piece of business as well. Loved it. 
Yeah, no, it's a tremendous move, and I can't really talk about it too much. Uh, it capped off, however, a roaring return to form. Look, everyone knew this was going to happen, and that's what happens when you've got a company this hot and a uh, fan base willing to receive it. I guess that everyone liked this. Um, we're always interested in hearing your thoughts because, as much as we say, oh, Christ, crowds, do I have the mutants on Twitter? We know the listeners are mutants. We are genuinely interested in your thoughts, and you can post them below the uh, Twitter link to this podcast at WhatCultureWWE. And whilst you're there, you can follow Michael Hamflet at Michael Hamflet. I like that by using the Twitter thing, you've done a nice Jim Ross thing, and you've rounded up an AEW show with a WWE reference. We have no choice. He was there for yes. It's just it's, it's, <laughs> you can't focus on these things too much. Like, please don't do this. Just enjoy that wonderful. Pa- Gift you were given in the form of that video package. Um, you can follow me at Michael Sidgwick. Again, you can follow us all at What Culture WWE, and we will see you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.